Paul, you kind of dig down to the letter, you see that he is writing into that culture, the underlying pressure of Crete, these brand new Christians trying to, to live for Jesus, to speak for Jesus. And yet the culture around them is very difficult for them to do that. So my question for you is, what would Paul say about Oxford? What would the poem be? Or East Oxford? What would he say? What are the besetting sins of this area? What particular cultural pressures do you face as you seek to live for Jesus, to speak for Jesus? What do you think? Now obviously it's much more complicated because I think Oxford, and I think you think as well, that it's a mix of cultures. Uh, the the Maldon Road vision statement, uh, Maldon Road exists, um, for the peoples, plural, of East Oxford to show them the glory of Christ. So what do you think? Well, how about these? I wonder if there's a particular suspicion and a cynicism towards authority structures to those in authority over us. There seems to be a deep mistrust within this area. Or how about a, a kind of morality and an image that says, I'm a good person because of what I do. My, my recycling, my fair trade, my alternative ideas. And so God is perhaps unnecessary. God is perhaps squeezed out of the picture. How about a worship of intelligence? academia, knowledge, an ability to comment on the latest book that's out there, an ability to be able to engage, to win an argument. Or what about simply the, the multi-faith, pick-and-mix society that we live in, that's particularly prevalent in this area? There is no one truth, we're told. All truths are valid. All truths are good. Just don't you try and impose your truth on me, thank you. I don't know, you can come and grab me a coffee and tell me where I'm wrong. Uh, tell me what you think. But I do know that, that, that for each one of those, the Gospel is the answer. For each pressure, for each besetting sin, the, the Gospel of Grace is the answer for that. Remember this Gospel of Grace? We've seen it in, on Crete, these transforming and growing little seedling baby churches. Remember, it's the knowledge of truth that leads to godliness, 1 verse 1. We saw last week, it's the grace of God that's appeared that offers salvation to all people. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly pressures, passions, sorry, and to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives. These little seedling churches have to be so gospel-saturated, so driven by grace, that people are applying it to every second of their week, everything that they do. And so they're growing a people who are eager to be what is to be doing what is good, eager to do what is good. The gospel of grace is the answer. And I take Titus chapter three essentially to be an outworking of that. Paul is being very kind to us. He's really spelling it out. It's very slow, very methodical. And so we see this transformed goodness in chapter three. We're going to have four. Headings, four titles. Verse 1 to 2, we're thinking about transformed living. Uh, verse 3 to 8, 
transformed thinking. Verse 9 to 11, transformed speaking. And verse 12 to 15, transformed commitments. So, verse 1 to 2 then, transformed living. And the focus particularly seems to be his engagement with the outside world. And he looks up to those above us, those in authority over us. And then he looks about to those around us, the people that we rub shoulders with day by day. Verse 1, remind the people to be subject to rules and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready to do whatever is good and to slander no one, to be peaceable and considerate, and always to be gentle toward everyone. So verse 1, remind the people to be subject. It seems to me when we read that first verse, then we have a problem. Our knee-jerk reaction is, but are there exceptions? It's the, but what about? What about Christians around the world this morning who are suffering for their faith, for whom it's illegal for them to meet as Christians? What about them? Are they to be subject to rules and authorities? What about those people who are hounded and persecuted for being Christians? What about those Christians living in an unjust regime? That our immediate reaction is, but what about? Do you find that? I find that. I think they're great questions. They're good questions you need to wrestle with. A very brief answer, again, come and grab me over coffee, is from the Bible as a whole, we see that our prime allegiance is to Jesus. He's our ultimate boss. He's our ultimate authority. And where we're to... Um, we're not able to obey him because of what the state says or because of the authority over us, then we need to disobey them. We see that with places like Daniel, where Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego wouldn't bow the knee to the statue. They were prepared to to disobey the authority. They are prepared to die. They're hard questions. But our prime allegiance is to Jesus. The thing is, for us and for now, we don't live in a society like that. That's not us, is it? We are called to submit to the authorities over us. To be obedient, to be ready to do whatever is good. And yet we find it hard. We struggle. I kept this week on that, and I think there are two, there are lots of reasons why that is. Here are two big ones, if you like, that really affect me. The first is simply that we want to be the boss. We want to be the boss. We want to call the shots. We don't like someone having a power over us. You can trace it right back to the third chapter of the Bible. You see Adam and Eve, they want the stuff that God gives them. They don't want him as their ruler. And he was the perfect boss. It's wired into us. We get twitchy when people have an authority over us. We don't trust them. They think it's a power play. They're wanting to control us. The second reason that strikes me, I think, is kind of a dry cynicism that comes from where we are in history at the moment. We see past failures. We see politicians. And we think, well, I don't trust them anymore. Or we see bosses in the past who have let us down. And that easily leads to this sweeping kind of culture of complaining against the management, whoever they might be. From my experience, you see it very clearly in schools. I know teachers who find it very hard to swim against the the culture of complaining that goes on in the staff room. You see it especially in large organisations. You think the NHS or 
or the city or county council, especially where previous people have made a mess and are having to kind of sort it out, we don't like authority structures. And yet, that makes it hard because part of the transformed life that comes from the gospel is to be subject. It's to be obedient. Paul is speaking to us in our culture and I find this very challenging. It's relevant in the workplace, it's how you use your time, it's our attitude to those over us, it's relevant as we um, submit to the governing authorities, it's how you pay your taxes, it's whether you park on double yellow lines, whether you cycle on the pavement, whether you have lights on your bike, whether you break speed limits around town. Paul says elsewhere it matters because God puts these authorities in place and as we rebel against them, then we rebel against him. As we submit to them, then we submit to him. So he looks up to those over us. And he looks around and says, slander no one. Be peaceable, be considerate, be gentle toward everyone. The thing that jumps out for me is that there are no exceptions. And you know as well as I do that there are people who wind us up particularly people outside the church here, but they're just folks that we don't click with. That person in your family or your office or your sports team or your class or your lecture theatre or on your streets, and you just don't like them very much. And so easily we slip into talking unkindly about them or unkindly to them. But Paul says, not for the gospel-saturated life that does good. We're always to be kind, not slander, that's evil speaking. Not quarrelsome, but peaceable and considerate. Gentle to everyone. It's not being a doormat. It's treating people well, however they treat you. And we say, how? How do we do that? You don't know the short fuse that I have. You don't know my lack of sleep at the moment. You don't know my stress levels. You don't know how mean they were to me. And you want me to treat them like that? How do I do that? And Paul says, well, we change how we think. We know what we were like and how God treated us. And that changes how we treat them. So we see that in verse 3 to 8, transformed thinking. The only way that transformed living, verse 1 to 2, can happen if we change the way we think, verse 3 to 8. And it's similar to last week, and I'm going to keep banging on about it. It's not live like this to make God love you. It's live like this because God loves you. Because of what he's done already. Because of his grace. Because of who you are in him now. The fact that he's changing you and transforming you. So live like that. Let me read those verses again, verse 3 through to eight. At one time, we too were foolish, disobedient, deceived and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. But when the kindness and love of God our Saviour appeared, he saved us, not because of righteous things we have done, but because of his mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit whom he poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ our Saviour so that, having been justified by his grace, we might become heirs having the hope of eternal life. 
This is a trustworthy saying, and I want you to stress these things, that those who have trusted in God may be careful to devote themselves to doing what is good. These things are excellent and profitable for everyone. Now I could talk about these verses for hours. I think they're fantastic. They are full of, jam-packed full of great truth. But we're going to have to go home for lunch in a bit. So we're going to be selective. I want to say three things from them. The first thing is that Paul doesn't pull any punches when he describes what we were like. Of course, you think people are one thing. And then you dig a bit deeper and you see what they're really like. They give the impression of being together. They wear their posh suit from uh, eight till six at work. And then you see their home life. Or their finances. Or their relationships. Or their addiction to alcohol. They try and hide it, but they're foolish and disobedient. And then we think we're free, we're free, we're able to do what we want to do, to have what we want to have. And yet those things just capture us and enslave us, verse 3. They deceive us. The money we dream of, the things we aspire to, the, the image that we want to portray to others. And we think we're free, but they own us. We think they're going to give us life and joy and happiness and contentment. And yet it's just like drinking seawater. It never quenches. We're always thirsty. We always want more. It's never enough. It's always the next thing. They deceive us. They enslave us. And we think we're so clever with our advancements in technology and progress and innovation, we can, we can make nuclear power that provides energy for millions. And we make nuclear bombs that can kill millions. We think we're advanced and mature and grown up and yet verse 3, we live in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. And I think with unnerving clarity, Paul has diagnosed what society is like. Doesn't he? He's seen what we're like. Things don't seem to have changed very much from 1st century Crete to 21st century Oxford. And it seems like a dead end. What can we do about this? We can't make ourselves better. No amount of hard work is going to solve it, no resolve and discipline and restraint. If you're here and you wouldn't call yourself a Christian, I'd love you to try for 24 hours. Give it a go. Try and be perfect. Come and tell me how you get on. Our only hope is that God will do something about it. That God will do something about it. That he will come and, come and sort out the mess we're in and he will change us. Transform us. Which is what we get in verses 4 to 7. So first, Paul has said, this is what you are like. Secondly, he says, well, here's what God has done about it. And here's why he does it too. And in the original, verse 4 to 7, it was just one sentence. Many think it was just a simple creed that the early Christians would, would recite together, would say together at their meetings. This is God's patient response to our mess. That's just why he does it. 
He does it because of what he's like and not because of what we're like. See, what's he like? Verse 4, he's kind and he loves. So sad. Far too many Christians I meet or I know struggle with that idea. For them, God is much more of the tormenting tyrant, the, the distant dictator who wants to control them. He wants to make them feel bad about themselves. But God is kind. God loves. At the very core of who he is, he is a loving God. The Father loves the Son who loves the Spirit. He's a God who loves his creation. He's a God who loves the people who are his. And that love has appeared in the person of Jesus. So he saves people because he's kind, because he's loving, and not because they are good. It's so easy to think that what we do makes us right with God, or, or what we do makes us not need God. They have a lovely friend, um, they wouldn't call themselves Christians, and yet this family is kind and generous and good and patient. They love their children, that they put us to shame. They are so kind. And yet they're not at all happy with this idea of grace. And I thought for a long time, why is that? Why is that? Why are you so lovely and yet you just don't like grace? And the answer? But you think you don't need God. It's because if there's a need for grace, then it shows that you're not good enough. It shows that there is a barrier between you and God that you can't cross by all the good stuff you do, all your patience and kindness and generosity. I think that's really common. We see it all around us. In East Oxford, the stuff we do as we give to charity and maybe even we come to church by thinking of ourselves as being a good person, by being kind, by, by recycling. And they become functional saviours. There's this moral code that we construct and think, well, I'm okay. I'm good, thank you. Why should I need God, actually? Of course, if it doesn't work. If it doesn't work, you need a saviour. He saved us, verse 5, not because of righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. That's why our friend struggles with grace. They think they're okay because of the righteous things they've done. God's not like us. God loves lavishly, generously. He shows mercy to all kinds of people, to those who don't do righteous things, to those who are bad. He doesn't just show grace to those whom the world admires and thinks are good. What happens when he loves us? What happens when he saves us? Well, he comes to live within us. See verse 5 and 6 there, his Holy Spirit. He washes us clean from the filth and the dirt of our sin, from the reality of our hearts. From verse 3. We're renewed, we're changed, we're, we're new people when he comes to live within us. I mean, the, the message paraphrase, Eugene Peterson says, that God gave us a good bath 
and we came out of it new people, washed inside and out by the Holy Spirit. I quite like that. The early church father quite often says, as when a house is in a ruinous state, no one places props under it, nor makes any addition to the new building, but pulls it down to its foundations and rebuilds it anew. So in our case, God has not repaired us. He's made us anew. I don't know if you, if your need for something of that resonates today, maybe you wouldn't call yourself a Christian, maybe you're just here visiting us, just looking in on Christian things. I don't know if you to trust Jesus today. Trust his grace today. Follow him. Maybe you see something of yourself in verse 3, you do your best to hide it. And yet you know it to be true. And yet don't despair. Look at verse 4, and verse 5, and verse 6. We, we just can't do it by ourselves. We just can't save ourselves. And yet we don't need to. Because Jesus has done it for us. His sacrificial death. He rescues us. He transforms us. Verse 7, he justifies us. That's, that's law court language. That's the judge looking at us and seeing us as innocent. Because Jesus' death in our place on the cross. Our sin washed away. Our sin not counted against us. Trust him today. Today will be a great day to do that. Don't put it off any longer. Nothing else can deal with your sin. Nothing else can put you right with him. That makes us very unpopular in the multi-faith culture that we live in. And yet the Bible won't budge. Nothing else works. So firstly we've seen what we're like. Secondly, what God's done. Thirdly, now what's to come. There's even more than this. There's, he gives us a future as well in verse 7 that we might become heirs having the hope of eternal life. We see the ultimate goal of the, the Father's initiative, of Christ's labours, of the Spirit coming to live within us. The ultimate goal is that we might live with God forever. That we might have eternal life. That's a life that begins now. It's a, it's a spiritual heartbeat, if you like. It starts beating. And when we stop breathing, and when our physical hearts stop breathing, stop beating, and when the blood stops pumping, and when our bodies decay, then this spiritual heartbeat goes on, and on, and on. And Christ will come back. That's the hope. Having the hope of eternal life, verse 7 not an uncertain hope. It's not a, well, I hope it doesn't rain for the picnic next week. It's a certain hope. Absolutely certain hope. Because of the resurrection, we can have absolute certainty that Christ will come back. So as we trust him and we're joined to him and we'll be heirs with him, we will inherit with him because of his resurrection. Now again, these are the core Christian beliefs for how we live. These are what impact our daily lives. It's what we were like, what God has done for us and why, what sort of a future we have from him. And so because of these, well, be careful to devote yourself to doing what is good. And then he finishes the letter with kind of two little snapshots, I think, uh, from verse 9 to verse 15. The first one is there in verse 9 to 11, and it's how not to do good, if you like. 
Just briefly, we glance in again at the false teachers. And Paul says, here is how you are to relate to them, Titus. Here is how it should transform your speaking, the words that you use. And then verse 12 to 15, he finishes off. And he says, here's what a transformed life looks like in terms of the commitments that you are to have for this message, this gospel of grace, impacting further afield. So firstly then, or thirdly, verse 9 to 11, transformed speaking. Do you remember the situation from week one? We thought there were travelling teachers going around. There was probably a Jewish root to what they were saying. There was unhelpful, speculative theology. We said as well that they were greedy and motivated by money. Probably they were sort of eloquent rhetorical speakers who would travel around and expect a payment for their services. And Paul says, don't get sucked into that stuff. Titus, don't get sucked in. Don't let them drain your time, change your focus. Don't let them set the agenda for what you do. Now, we do need a balance here. Some people would take verses like this and say, well, therefore we must avoid all controversy at all costs, mustn't we? Theological arguments and discussions, they are unhelpful, they say. We're just being foolish controversialists they say. Now that's not what Paul is saying though. He's warning as he does for Timothy and to Timothy actually. He says, just don't get sucked in into their arguments and discussions and debates about peripheral things. They always give lots of heat but very rarely give any light at all. I remember the student um, more than once staying up into the early hours discussing and debating things of little value. Some cool stuff as well but sometimes things of little value, peripheral things. And easily it became about me and my pride and winning an argument, or it became about me and my pride and having the final word. I think you see it today, you see it especially if you're the kind of person who reads blogs, particularly Christian blogs, the discussion at the bottom of that can seem horribly ungodly. Just take care, he says to Titus. Don't spend hours formulating your response. These people are going to drain you. Just be careful. Charles Spurgeon said, there are hundreds of questions which are thought by some people to be very important, but which have no practical bearing whatever, either upon the glory of God or upon the holiness of man. We are not to go into these matters. Let those who have time to waste take up these questions. As for us, we have no time for things that are unprofitable and vain. And if they keep coming back to badger you, or verse 10, you warn them once and move on. So doing good is not being like these false teachers. It's being careful to the discussions that we get drawn into. Paul's told us what we need to know, verse 3 to 8. We know this stuff. This is core stuff. Reflect on this. Just be careful about what, what other things that we get dragged into. So it's not about those things as we do good. It is about, verse 12 to 15, is wanting the gospel message to go forth. And what we're going to get a glimpse of here is that this is not an isolated incident in Crete. This isn't a one-off. Titus is all about this gospel of grace that starts churches and transforms people and the message rings out from there. And we see there's much more work to do. We see the next step. Essentially, it's a dot, dot, dot. Transformed commitments. 
I take it the antidote to being a stingy Christian is to realise quite how generous God has been with us. We see the enormous cost of what he did and so that transforms how we respond to others and their needs. We see what he achieved and we want this gospel of grace just to get out there, to work, to transform people. And so it's evident then in the transformed commitments you see in these people. Let me read from verse 12. As soon as I send Artemis or Tychicus to you, do your best to come to me at Nicopolis because I have decided to winter there. Do everything you can to help Zenas the lawyer and Apollos on their way and see that they have everything they need. Our people must learn to devote themselves to doing what is good in order to provide for urgent needs and not live unproductive lives. So when Titus has finished on Crete, it's not job done. There's more that's going to happen. He's given him, Paul's given him the next stop in his travel plans. He's to go up to Nicopolis. That's from, from Crete there up to Crete there up to northwest Greece up there. Crete is not it. There's more, there's more people to go and speak to. There are more places to visit. No doubt there are more poems and cultural pressures that the gospel will need to work in and transform people in. And yet before he leaves Crete, he's got to provide for Zenas and Apollos. We don't know much about Zenas. Uh, but Apollos is quite well known in the New Testament. You find him in places like Acts, 1 Corinthians. And often you see him going around strengthening new churches. He's a sort of second wave of teaching that comes behind after Paul. Encouraging, fortifying, building up Christians, helping them to live for Jesus. See, the Gospel turns lives around and changes the kind of stuff that we're committed to. It changes what we fill our diary up with. You see, resources of time and energy and effort in Titus. He was about to head off to Nicopolis. You see, money is to go to Zenas and Apollos, which provide for their urgent needs. The word just kind of points to food and clothing and supplies. And that's normal Christians who are to do that. Titus is to encourage normal Christians to give the work of the ministry. That's you and me type Christians. And so I can't help but think of Amy Ski. She's about to head off or just headed off. He uses people like us to provide for real needs. Things don't fall from the sky often. But he uses people like us to provide for people. To open our wallets and our houses and our kitchens and our diaries and to, to keep going and press on. And when we feel tired then we help others. The opportunity rightly falls to us as we partner with her as she heads out. We, we devote ourselves to doing what is good. God's been very generous with us in the Gospel. And so we're generous with her and her needs. In fact, take a step back and if ever you feel like a stingy Christian or you find it hard to be generous, or unnecessary to be generous. Go back to the Gospel again. Go back to verse 3 to 8. See what you are like. See what God has done. See what he's got in store for you. That transforms the things that we're committed to. It transforms the things that matter to us. I don't know what you'd say if you look around Oxford or East Oxford and think of the kind of poems that go on here. What kind of cultural pressures you guys face 
Perhaps it is this cynicism towards authorities. Do you know the Gospel's the answer? Maybe it's the self-centred morality. I'm okay because of what I do. I'm a good person. No, the Gospel's the answer. Maybe it's the self-image that's founded on intelligence and academia and all the stuff that I know. Actually, the Gospel's the answer. That's the only thing you need to know at the end of the day. Maybe it's this multi-faith sea that is swirling around us. We find it so hard to say, no, there is such a thing as truth. Actually, the Gospel's the answer. The Gospel is the only answer. And that must be something that we are committed to. Committed to getting out. 